Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight on The Breakdown, a man with a black belt in karate. So watch out, Marisa. Yeah, really. He competes in triathlons in his free time. He bikes 30 miles each day to work and back. And that's when he's not representing the interests of some of the most well-known tech companies on the planet. Think Apple, Facebook. Carl Gordino is president and CEO of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and he'll be joining us in just a few minutes. Somebody we've had on the air many, many times. Yes. We've interviewed him over the years for many, many things. He's been on forum, but tonight we get to... We're going to get behind behind all that. The, Behind the facade. Maybe he's going to tell us what Mark Zuckerberg is really like. Maybe. Probably not. Yeah. Um, but first, let's talk about the week in politics yet again. Yes. The speaker from San Francisco, she, she just can't stop becoming a meme. She is becoming sort of the RBG of Congress <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. So, you know, she just, there, there, was, there was the red coat and sunglasses meme right. after she and she Schumer walked out of the White House. And then this week, she clapped back. She clapped back at Trump standing behind him during the State of the Union. And it was sort of like it's been described as a walrus clap, uh, the sort of the condescending clap. I'm not sure. Well, and the idea is that she was clapping as he called for an end to the politics of revenge. Um, I think folks on the left who support her think that it was sarcastic. She insists it was not. Yeah, there was a little bit of a smirk. I thought, you know, I saw. you know, yeah. would you say that about a man? I don't know. No, um, no, it, it did seem a little sarcastic, but she says it was... Playing the gender the, card yeah, in the first three I, minutes. <laughs> um, but there was actually some sensitive, also, things happening between the California delegation and the president this week, not just Nancy Pelosi's performance at the State no, of the Union. No, there was something. Adam Schiff, who is the uh, new chair of the House Intelligence Committee, you talk about a 180 from who had been chairing it, Devin yeah, Nunes, right. another Californian from the Central Valley, uh, who basically wrapped up the Russia probe. And uh, yeah, Adam Schiff, uh, really g- wanting to go deep into the finances of Trump and his family business. This is the red line that Trump had drawn, right. remember. And, you know, Schiff is definitely framing it in a pretty specific way. He's saying, is anything the you know, the that the president has done been sort of moved by his own finances? Has that impacted him? You know, it's within the framework of the presidency. Um, but the president is mad. Not he happy. went on a little tweet storm this morning calling out Adam Schiff. Unlimited it's, presidential harassment. I think yes, presidential harassment, all caps. It should never be allowed to happen again. Um, so, you know, that's something we're going to be watching here closer to home. Well, before that, I was going to say, yeah. he was, uh, Schiff was also in New Hampshire. 
uh, I think, this hmm. week. You know, so just kind of stoking. He's not running for president, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's, you know, somebody could be on a vice presidential yeah. list, along with Javier Becerra, who was also in the news this week, giving the Spanish language uh, response to the State of the Union. But what you were going to yeah, say Yeah, so lot, lots, of, uh, lots of Californians making their national mark this week. Next week, we'll be seeing our own Governor Gavin Newsom give his uh, State of the State address. Um, right. So we'll be looking forward to that. We'll have a lot on the show. Doing a broadcast with Capital Public Radio, 11 o'clock m- Tuesday. 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 Right. And then next Thursday, we'll have the Speaker of the Assembly on to Anthony tell Rendon. us what he thought about Valentine's that. Valentine's Day. Nothing says Valentine's <laughs> Day like <laughs> Speaker Rendon. Speaker Rendon. <laughs> You heard it here first, Rendon. Um, But, you know, this week there was one thing I do want to note is um, some sort of long-awaited policing legislation came out in Sacramento. Last year we saw some some pretty groundbreaking bills pass around police records and misconduct. This time they're going back at a bill that did not make it out of the Senate. Um, This is a bill by Shirley Weber, or sorry, the Assembly, the Shirley Weber Assemblywoman who um, wants to basically make it easier to prosecute police officers who use deadly force. Her bill was sort of preempted, however, by police groups and a more moderate Democrat, Senator Ana Caballero, um, from the Salinas Valley area. This is a bill introduced last year after the Stefan Clark police shooting in Sacramento. And so Shirley Weber's coming back at it. They had tried to come to the table and spent months negotiating with police officers over something that everyone could live with. That deal fell apart. So Wednesday, we saw the police come forward with a senator and say, hey, how about a bill to just increase training and increase funding around training? Standardized policies, that right. kind of thing. Um, so basically, we're, we're going to be watching these two competing police bills move their way through the legislature this year. And I think given how much, you know, not just Stefan Clark, but so many other shootings have become, you know, really a part of the public zeitgeist and talking about whether they're appropriate, um, there'll be big things to watch. Yeah, and of course, year. there's a different governor now who may be a little more receptive to it, although it never got to Jerry Brown's desk, so we don't know what he would have done. Right, or maybe more receptive to stepping in earlier and being part of the negotiations. Yeah, I although mean, Tony we'll Atkins, the Senate president, she did try to, she did bring these groups together. She tried to broker a deal with the police groups and the civil libertarians, and it uh, just kind of fell short, so they went in their separate corners and released their own bills. Yeah, so I think it'll be fascinating, and I think I did misspeak. So the Weber bill did get out of the Assembly. It died in the Senate, um, which is interesting because historically we've actually seen in recent years the Assembly be the more more sort of moderate body. Um, so I think those dynamics will be fascinating to watch. Another thing to talk to the speaker about. Exactly. It, and it is, we have seen sort of a decline in the political influence up in Sacramento of the some of the law enforcement groups. You've been, you've been certainly writing about that and reporting on that in the last couple of years, really. Yeah. And I had a little scoop a week ago about this um, donation that the prison correctional officers gave $2 million to a ballot measure campaign for 2020 that would basically roll back a lot of the reforms that Jerry Brown and other Democrats have championed. They asked for the money back a few weeks ago. Um, They won't talk to us about why, but we think it might be because they have contract negotiations coming up with Governor Newsom. And, you know, he's been pretty progressive on these issues. Yeah, and they have a change of leadership also, the organization does. And that was one of the last things the outgoing president did, I think, right? Right, Right. they said he did that. And we just want the money back so we can think about if this is where we want to be putting our money. Yeah, I don't know if that check's going to be in the mail. 
I am not holding my breath. But um, again, you know, I think the dynamics around policing, as you noted, have really changed in the Capitol, will continue to under Newsom. But, you know, it, it sort of remains to be seen in which direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, we there is a larger majority now of, uh, of Democrats who would be receptive to these kinds of things. But, you know, it, 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 you do Maybe, want... Maybe, but there's a lot of moderate Democrats. There are a lot of moderate Dems. And I think, you know, also everything, there is an understanding that police policing is tough. And you want to try to strike that balance so that there is accountability uh, without putting them in danger by, you know, making it harder for them to use force when it's appropriate. You know, they have to make these split second decisions. And I think, you know, they, they, you know, I think the lawmakers are going to want to s- strike the right balance on that. And I think that'll be a, a big part of the debate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a short break and when we come back. We'll be joined by Silicon Valley Leadership Group CEO Carl Gardino. You've been listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here, as always, with Marisa Lagos. And tonight we have the head of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, Carl Guardino, here with us. Carl, welcome to The Breakdown. I'm delighted to be here. You didn't bike up here tonight from San I Jose. wish I had. I wish I had, but no, not Listen, at night. We didn't have triathlon had, up or didn't something. Tri- <laughs> we have had you on the air so many times because you're so accessible to us and on forum. And But I think I want to just sort of start by get, getting everybody on the same page. What is the Silicon Valley Leadership Group? What's your elevator pitch for, for what you guys do? Sure. What we try to do is live up to the vision that our founder, David Packard, the co-founder of Hewlett Packard, had, and that was to take very busy CEOs, C-suite officers, to engage instead of being enraged in a positive, proactive way to make our region, state, and increasingly nation a better place not only to do business, but it had to meet the two-hoop theory of also being good for our employees and their families. Okay, so that... That is the elevator pitch for sure. But you hit on something at the end that I think is really important and does really set you guys apart from sort of your typical chamber of commerce, which is that you guys tend to take a bigger view of what's good for business and what's and how the common good fits into that. Um And it sounds like that's always been the mission. Do you feel like that's changed at all over the years? Well, I hope it's even grown to fit the vision that Mr. Packard had. And he was a pretty progressive CEO. And if you read even the HP way, you're going to find that in a hurry. But yes, what we try to do is to make sure that we honor his vision, but build on that vision. Because the most important asset of any innovation economy company are your employees. And if you're not treating them well, 
and by extension their families, then you're not going to succeed as a company. So it's both the right thing to do as well as enlightened self-interest. And you're trying to get them to think beyond what's best for their own individual company and what's best for the versus what's good for the community, even though they may have to, you know, cough up some money sometimes. Yeah. And what's fun about that is that we try to get to as many startup CEOs in their 20s and 30s and build into their Mm. DNA that, yeah, build a great company, but also build a great uh, culture for your company that's good to your employees. And don't forget about the communities in which you're located. So you're the reason the Zuckerberg Chans are so philanthropic then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm glad that they're doing that on their own. But what's, what's fascinating is we're a business group, Marisa, as you just said, that's supported or even sponsored more tax and fee proposals than we've ever opposed with that shared sacrifice or shared responsibility model. Have you seen a a change? And now now you you were born and raised in San Jose. So I know you remember when there were probably like fruit trees down there. Uh, Valley of Heart's Delight. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, because some of the old time CEOs, the founders, the David Packards, uh, I think had a different philosophy and a different sense of community than some of the some of the younger tech folks have, I and mean, there's been a lot of discussion around whether they are invested in the community. And I'm wondering, like, how, what what has been the evolution in terms of the CEOs as you've seen it, and how have you tried to, you know, what have you done to bring to kind of reel them in and start thinking about the larger community? And for David Packard and Bill Hewlett, starting in a garage in Palo Alto in the late 1930s, those CEOs started local, and those companies were built to eventually be global. So they had that global mm-hmm. thought process in mind. Companies today are, they may be founded here in the region, but they're global from birth. And more and more, their CEOs weren't born or raised here. They came here. And um, and as immigrants, they have that global view, even when it comes to philanthropy. So our job, again, is don't forget your own backyard. Remember where you are. Think globally, but really do contribute locally as well. Well, let's back up because... You know, you have a really interesting story yourself. As Scott said, you were born and raised in San Jose, working class family. Um, I think your dad hung drywall. He did. Right. Yes. As I did for five years working my way through college. Oh, nice. And so I wonder, like, how that upbringing relatively modest sort of has impacted the way you think about the job you do now, how you're raising your own kids in a very, I'm sure, different household than the one you grew up in. Yeah, and immigration reform would be a good example of how that's played out. My my grandma came from Sicily as a young girl, couldn't speak a word of English. Mm. So when I hear that we should only care about high-skilled workers, which of course we should care about, let's not forget that we live in a country that was built not only on the brains, but on the backs of immigrants, whether they were low-skilled, no-skilled, or high-skilled. And my dad and his nine brothers and sisters picked apricots and prunes in the Valley of Heart's Delight growing up. So let's care about not only the the tech employees that we want to recruit the best and brightest from around the world, but the folks that are also putting meals on their table. Well, and you did not go directly into tech, of course, you know, and, I, and as we read up on you, uh, you know, we know that you went to the Bethany Bible College in, Santa Cruz, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Talk about that. What, what did you see? Where did you see that taking you? you what did drew you homework. to that? Yeah, I'm impressed. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I, like all of us, we had career decisions to make, and my desire was to have a mission-driven career. 
And I sat down with my pastor and said, what do you think? Should I go into full-time ministry or full-time public service? And what's the best way to serve our community? And I'm not sure if I should take this as a compliment or a detriment, but after talking to me for an hour, he said, don't go into the ministry. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why did he say that? He really just helped me think through where do you want to be in five years, 10 years? How do you think you can make the biggest community impact? But I could could totally see you you being a minister. Uh, You have a a very calm demeanor. You know, you just you're very measured uh, and you obviously care about the community. Yeah. And, and faith is still a big part of my wife, Leslie, in my life. And and that will always be. But it was St. Francis who said, preach the gospel at all times. And when all else fails, use words. And so what we try to do is is live our faith and make an impact on people by how we live rather than. Uh, being too overt about our faith. Well, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, like going into the ministry is a far cry from then doing what you did do, which is go work in the state capitol for an assemblyman for a while, um, among other things. But I mean, was that, it seems like to you that felt like a natural path. It did, because again, it was about service. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've tried to take the leadership group with the support of our 360 member company CEOs. They let us form a foundation in 2002 and do community charity work through our Applied Materials Silicon Valley Turkey Trot, which is six years in a row, the largest time Thanksgiving Day run in the world. And that was never the goal to be the biggest. It was to be the most generous. So we're giving away nearly a million dollars a year through that to really needy families throughout the Bay Area region. But the leadership group and its members have said, yeah, we that is the vision that we have. Mm-hmm. Be a great company, care about our employees, but we've got to give back to our community. You were, as Marisa said, working for an assemblyman, Rusty Arreyes, yes. uh, up in Sacramento. And again, as we were, I was sort of looking at the years you were working for him, I realized that that was the time that Rusty Arreyes was part of the Gang of Five. He was. That tried to depose the Ayatollah of the Assembly, Willie Brown, and of course they failed. Um, what did, how close were you to all of that at the time, and what what, do you, what did you take away from that? I was I was Rusty's district director at the time. We lost half our staff, and that's oh, wow. what often happens when when you try to take on leadership, and there are usually repercussions if you fail. So yeah. the gang of five um, tried that effort, were not successful. And we lost half our team, and you had to say goodbye to some really hardworking folks who cared deeply about this state. Because the speaker just took it out on your budget. Yes, <laughs> yes. But they they patched it up too. They, didn't they did eventually? because uh, one Willie did, that never has permanent enemies. That's one thing he he's learned. Yeah, and that's you know the the great comment from Winston Churchill: "We have no permanent friends, permanent enemies. We have permanent interests." And they did patch it up, and they've they've stayed friends. And Rusty is just such a positive caring person that, you know, you move on, you learn your lessons, hopefully, and move on. And I think he did as well. But we were strange. What do you think the lesson was? Yeah, I was what the very straight laced guy and Rusty was Rusty as a single person in the Capitol. So but we worked well together. Did you learn anything from that that you've brought with you through this when it comes mm-hmm. to like bringing together disparate groups or negotiating yeah. or taking on fights that maybe aren't always the smartest. Yeah. First, it was, you know, build bridges rather than burn them down and find ways to build consensus. And that was a lesson really that I started learning as a kid. I was the youngest of four boys in an Italian household. And if you wanted to ever get a word in edgewise, then you needed to learn to negotiate early in life and to try to build consensus with three older rambunctious brothers. 
You tried to run, you did run for office, right? I you did. ran for, uh, was it the Board of Supervisors? The County Santa Board of Supervisors. And you lost to Mike Honda. I did, 28 years old. I was one of many who lost to Mike Honda. <laughs> and some great people, Jim Kinnean, who was in the Assembly, lost in his congressional race against Mike Honda. Ken Yeager, a great member of our Board of Supervisors until he recently was termed out, lost against Mike Honda. So the, the list is long and distinguished. Why did you, you, you took one run, you lost, and yeah. then that was it. I learned a lesson. I um, that I, I learned a lesson that there's so many ways we can serve our community outside of elected office. And in the role I'm in now, we get to make such wonderful, positive change without, you know, having to go to 15 events every Saturday and 19 events every Sunday. Constant fun Not watch our three little kids grow up. And I'd rather have that time with my children. Well, let's talk a little bit about your personal life. You, um, I know we're you're very you're still very athletic you had a black belt in karate had hoped to go to the olympics in martial arts i believe and then had an injury yeah and it was judo though i did take karate and, and i took karate aikido um, mm-hmm. and judo and yeah i was uh, in my youth uh, i was third in the country a couple of years hmm. and had been invited to the olympic training camp in colorado springs and in a fight, which is what you call a match in judo, a, a fight, uh, I got hurt and my knee went the wrong way, uh-huh. and that ended that career. And uh, so, you know, when you when you come to a locked door, you check the windows or build a new door, and that new door became triathlon. How oh, hard wow. was it to let go of that dream, though? It was really hard. Um, it, that was really hard. It was nine years uh, many of those years studying in a Buddhist temple in San Jose and just learning so much about respect and humility because as good as you think you might be and third in the country a couple of years wasn't bad, um, there's always somebody better on any given day. Say more about the, the, the we said you went to a Buddhist. Uh, we uh, we studied uh, judo in a Buddhist temple oh, in San Jose. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Interesting. I see. Just a reminder to our listeners, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Carl Gordino, president and CEO of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Um, so, Carl, you've mentioned your wife, Leslie, a few times. I understand yeah. you met her at the sexiest place ever, a public meeting, <laughs> where you were testifying. Is that? <laughs> I was giving a speech on housing and homelessness. And she was looking at me as the business guy after getting her master's at UC Berkeley. She had helped uh, homeless women and children for seven years starting her career. And she saw this business guy and I saw this kind of Birkenstock wearing UC Berkeley. Yes. (laughs) uh, Graduate. And she stood out in this audience of 200, 250 folks listening to me speech because she was the only one not booing me. Uh, So we struck up a conversation afterwards, became friends for a long time. And uh, eventually, about seven years later, uh, she finally agreed to go out on a date with me. Really? That long? You're oh, persistent. Yes. I am persistent. I am you patient. You can't tell. <laughs> she lowered her standards enough to finally say yes. Um, and so it sounds like you guys really bring a lot of shared values to this, yeah. that that she had some of the similar, even though you were in business and she was not. Yeah. Has she been... Um, I mean, I don't know. She, does she work? I guess I should ask that. Well, me. it's amazing, too, because after working with uh, homeless women and children for all those years, when I left the leadership group as vice president to go to Hewlett Packard, 
the CEO of the leadership group at the time hired her to take my place because oh, wow. a lot of my work was housing and transportation and she had the housing part nailed. So she went to the leadership group. When I was hired as CEO to come back, we overlapped for a few months and the American Electronics Association hired her to run um, in Northern California okay. for the AEA. And then she went to Selectron where she was one of the three highest ranking women in a male dominated manufacturing company with 80,000 employees around the world. And so she's in her late 20s, early 30s, as one of the three highest ranking women at this Fortune, at the time, Fortune 100 company. So you guys have like nothing to talk about. No, nothing at all. And then 13 years, uh, 14 years ago, uh, right after our first child, she was taking one more trip to China and she was in line at SFO and the TSA agent was just certain that her breast pump was a terrorist device and he ripped it apart before she got on a 14-hour flight. She got to China after 14 miserable hours without a breast pump, called me on the phone and said, I can't do this anymore. So she started her own business and has never looked back, has been running a business for 14 years. And you have three kids. We do. Jessica's 14, the old-fashioned way, two married folks who really like each other. Sienna's nine. We adopted her at one day old out of a small town in Utah. And Jake is almost two and a half, and we foster adopted Jake. Uh, he's the ninth child of a homeless woman. All nine children are in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she makes beautiful babies and blessed our lives with, uh, with Jacob Zachary. Mm-hmm. How is it balancing your job and three kids? Because I feel like it's you probably are getting phone calls like at all hours of the day. Yeah, and it's it's weird. So my, my workday starts between 4 and 4.30 because I can get those couple of hours in before anyone wakes up so that I can try to be home most nights by 6.30 and have dinner with our kids. And we have a fun tradition. When I get home, I say, who wants daddy's phone? And they take daddy's phone and they hide it. They hide it? They just go play on it? I ask them to hide it um, so that for at least two and two and a half hours before bed, they're empowered to know that daddy is solely focused on them. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Um, All right. Should we go back to tech and what's sure, happening yeah, in the well, business world? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there, tech, of course, has really exploded here in San Francisco over the last, you know, five to ten years. And it's been controversial. You know, um, we, you know, Marisa alluded to Mark Zuckerberg, who he and his wife have been very philanthropic. But there's a lot of tension around the tech industry in San Francisco, whether they are contributing enough in terms of housing and just community philanthropy, uh, whether they're causing a big problem in terms of the housing costs and the cost of living and driving out longtime tenants and residents and that kind of thing. How do you think about those issues? Because I know you care deeply about housing uh, and quality of life. I mean, how, how do you put all, when you put all that in the balance, what do you see? Yeah. And as you know, we created the Silicon Valley Housing Trust 20 years ago, which is probably the most innovative, successful housing trust in the United States. Uh, we've raised uh, nearly $200 million in, in voluntary contributions, raised the first $35 million ourselves through the leadership group, and have helped 25,000 families afford this high-cost region, uh, with a third of those funds always for people who are homeless, a third for affordable rental homes, and a third to help first-time home buyers. so that spectrum of need. Uh, and when people say, hey, it's tax fault or it's employer's fault, we all share a responsibility to improve our region and our state. But let's not forget that we have not consistently met the annual goals to keep up with California's population in terms of housing production, as Governor Newsom points out, since 1989. 
30 years of being under those numbers. I think we're one of the worst in the country in terms of housing production. We are. The 3.5 million homes that we're behind, the 49 other states, they're housing shortfall doesn't total 3.5 million. So people wonder supply-demand. It is a supply and demand issue. But let me push back a little on that because one of the things we do see is that campuses in Silicon Valley like Facebook and Apple can become part of the problem, right? You build this huge place and then it's in a city that is happy to take the business but not necessarily the housing. How much are you guys working on trying to pressure governments to do that work? Yeah, and in the term we we try to partner rather than pressure. Um, and we <laughs> Very do Very diplomatic. Uh, and and hopefully more effective. Yeah. But yes, we um we do advocate. We've advocated for more than 300 mainly affordable home developments which are not what house our employees, mm-hmm. but the other folks that are important to the fabric of our region. Well, and some, em- I mean, not the high-tech employees, but what about the janitors and the people who work in the kitchens? Te- teachers. And going right the to nannies. the fabric. Yeah, going right to the fabric of our region. You know, that person who waited on you at Pizza or Starbucks or the dry cleaner, they need to be able to live here too. And that's always been our emphasis yeah. through the Housing Trust and our advocacy. So we go to those hearings till one, two, three in the morning, fighting for an affordable home development that primarily our tech employees are not going to live in, but the other folks with whom we depend to make the Bay Area work, they do need those homes. All right. Probably final question here. How uncomfortable can those conversations be with the tech companies who may not want to put themselves out there and go against politicians that could be making decisions about their taxes or other things that they care about? Yeah. And that's the role of of a group like the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. I liken us to an umbrella. When it's raining out, when it's a tough issue, the umbrella goes up and we represent our companies in those hard conversations. And when it's sun shining out and positive, we pull the umbrella down and let the sun shine on our members. But the collective strength of those members saying, hey, business issues are key, but quality of life issues are equally important for everyone who lives in this region. And that's where our sweet spot is. And that's why we call them the issues facing the Bay Area, traffic, housing, and education. And when you come to those issues, they're as important to CEOs in their boardrooms as they are to our employees, their families, and everyone who lives in this region in their conversations, in their living rooms. All right, Carl Gardino. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm honored. It goes fast, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. Too fast. (laughs) That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Seal Muller. Vinny Tong is our managing editor. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me at M Lagos. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown. See you next week. See you later. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.